Well, if you've uh, been with us for a few weeks now, you'll know that we are heading through a, a mini teaching series, which we've called Devotement, a word that we made up, uh, a fusion of the word commitment and the, the word devoted, uh, which we sense is what we're called to be if we're going to be sold out followers or disciples of Jesus. I wonder if you were the writer of history books, how you would select what from history what from your life experience should be written down and recorded so that in the years to come, people can look back at those history books and think, yeah, it's good that we've remembered uh, that event. There are 7.8 billion people living on planet Earth right now, and my guess is it's quite difficult to choose, and it's quite difficult to select what should be recorded and what shouldn't be recorded. But of course, the job of a historian is to work out for themselves, isn't it, what they think is important and should therefore be written down. And this week has undoubtedly, hasn't it, been one of those weeks where a lot of stuff is going to be written in a lot of history books. There are very few historians, secular historians, who will not write about some of the events of this week. The, 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 the um, what's the word? I can't even think of the word. The, the, uh, the, the, the uh, let's pick a good word, I don't know. The establishment, we'll go for that, of a new prime minister. There's nothing worse than this job when you can't think of the right words. The establishment of a new prime minister, only the third prime minister, a female prime minister in our nation's history. That will find its way into the history books, and probably rightly so, whatever your political views might be. The passing earlier this week of a faith-filled and a, a faithful queen, Queen Elizabeth II, who's reigned for 70 and a bit years. Somebody who's influenced the lives of millions, billions of people living on planet Earth. An amazing statistic I heard this week, something like 94% of the population have been alive less time than the Queen has been alive. What an amazing statistic. Very few people who wouldn't have been influenced by her and her faith in Christ. That will be recorded in the history books, and rightly so. And then, of course, on the same day, the ascendancy of a new monarch, King Charles III, still doesn't quite trip off the tongue, does it? King Charles uh, III, I'm sure it will trip off the, the tongue soon, becoming our new king. And in the days ahead, he'll be formally established, as we've spoken about already, into that role. Of course, 21 years ago on this very day was another event which happened, which again, rightly made the history books. We now call that day 9-11. Will Barbara's baptism feature in the history books? Probably not. Will Marie's birthday be in the history books? Probably not. We have to be selective about what we record. Now, admittedly, I don't own a vast collection of history books, but if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would wager everything I own, which is not much, on the complete absence of the day of Pentecost in any secular history book. You simply won't find it. Those of you who did uh, GCSE or, for those slightly older, O-level history, my guess is you didn't cover that in the curriculum. You see, secular historians have relegated this amazing event in the life of our world to minor triviality, but God chooses to deliberately include it in another history book. It's more than that, of course, in the Bible. Why? Because it's an event which has changed the world beyond all recognition, even if the historians haven't spotted it. Because of the day of Pentecost, Jesus is still being worshipped and he's still being proclaimed as Lord and Saviour to this very day because of that event in history. Arguably, Pentecost changed the world more than any of those other events that I referenced. 
Well, Pentecost, of course, is captured in, uh, in, the, in the second chapter of Acts. And Luke there is telling the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He talks about the audio-visual aids of wind and fire and foreign languages, if you remember the story. And that day of Pentecost got mixed reviews from all the people who were there and witnessed it. Some said, well, this is amazing. This is good news. There are other people who said, hey, this is just fake news. Whatever's going on here is phony and we should just forget about it. And then there was another group of people who were totally confused and actually just said, here's just a bunch of babbling drunkards. That's all this is. And in our scripture reading this morning, as we continue our little series, the Apostle Peter gets on his preacher soapbox to explain what's actually happening in those words that Luke has captured in those opening 13 verses of Acts chapter 2. We'll, we'll come to Peter's words in a moment, but he opens up his sermon in verse 14 by saying this, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain all this to you. These men are not drunk as you suppose. Now, Peter's sermon is brilliant. It's very short. If it were given verbatim, it's argued that Peter's sermon probably would have taken about three minutes to deliver. I mean, what preacher ever sticks uh, to a three-minute sermon? Certainly not this one. Somebody once said, actually, Peter set a really good precedent for preaching, arguing that all sermons should be sermonettes, no longer than three minutes in length. But don't get excited, because I'm inclined to think that actually Peter's message was much longer. Anyhow, everyone knows, don't they, that sermonettes make Christianettes, and who wants to be one of those? As my good friend Arthur Tuffy uh, used to say, Baptists should always preach about two things, firstly, Jesus, and secondly, 20 minutes. But actually, Luke says at the very end of Acts chapter 2, with many other words, Peter warned and he pleaded with them uh, to save themselves from this corrupt generation, he says, with many other words on top of or as well as the sermon as we have it recorded. Well, all of that said, Peter was undoubtedly a really good Baptist preacher because essentially his sermon's broken into three parts. Firstly, he explains all about this amazing phenomenon, this, this day of Pentecost, and he says, look, this is what it was all about. Let me root this historically. But then he goes on, secondly, to make this amazing declaration of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he says, look, God raised Jesus to new life. He died, but he rose again. And then thirdly and finally, Peter concludes with a point of application for his hearers. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you. It's a powerful message. In fact, it's so powerful that at its conclusion, we read that 3,000 people responded to the message and became followers of Jesus. I would suggest that's not a bad response for your first ever sermon. 3,000 people became Christians. And what we see in Peter's sermon here is just a wonderful example of what happens when the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lives are changed. Lives are always changed when the gospel is shared and God is at work. Well, let's join the story. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. If you haven't, don't worry, just uh, listen in and I'll, I'll read it to us. We're going to dip in and out of the sermon uh, this morning. And it's entitled, Peter Addresses the Crowd. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock 
in the morning. I mean, who's ever been drunk at nine o'clock in the morning? That's a rhetorical question. You see, Peter begins his sermon with this rebuttal of this crazy idea that the people who were there on that day of Pentecost were drunk. And instead, Peter says, look, the Old Testament has a really good explanation of what's happened. And then he goes on to, to quote the prophet Joel. He says this from verse 16, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the glorious day of the Lord. And then he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, here in his sermon, Peter explains that what they've just seen and experienced was far from unexpected. This miraculous phenomenon of the Holy Spirit coming and filling these believers so they could speak in foreign languages they'd never learned was the very fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that God had already spoken out in the Old Testament, that there were days coming when old people and young people, men and women, slave and free, and every other category would be filled by the Spirit of God. The Spirit's coming at Pentecost, according to Peter, was an indication that this messianic age, or the last days as it's become known, had actually begun in the coming of Jesus. Now, of course, to us, none of that's particularly a surprise, is it? We've got 2,000 years of church history behind us to make sense out of this moment. But to Peter's first audience, what he was saying was absolutely shocking. It was astounding, astonishing, that God could dwell, indwell humanity, God Emmanuel, not not just God with us, but God within us. That's what Peter is saying to that group of people that were gathered. And he says, look, the only condition of that happening, of God coming to dwell within you and in your life, is that you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And that promise still hasn't changed. We can still have that same experience that by some amazing mystery, God by his spirit will come and live within us if only we invite Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. And that's what we celebrated in our first service this morning as Barbara was baptized. That there was a moment when she called Jesus to be her Lord and Savior. And in that very moment, he came and indwelt her by some crazy, uh, some crazy mystery. It's mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? But it's the promise of God for all who would simply call on the name of Jesus. You see, the best way to understand all that's going on at Pentecost, and Peter knew this, was not so much through a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. You see, Peter Peter does reference those words from Joel, but Peter knows that if you get stuck there and you don't interpret those events through uh, the lens of Jesus, then you're going to get stuck in a place where you miss Jesus coming as Lord and Saviour. He goes on to say in uh, verse 22 this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He begins by stating that Jesus was truly a man, a real man, a man who breathed the air that we breathed, a man who mingled with real people in the marketplaces. 
But Peter's so keen, isn't he, to underline this fact that Jesus was a man who lived, but it's very clear that his life and his ministry was endowed with divine power. Jesus was a man, but he had the power of God to still the winds, to still the waves, the storms that we face in life. Jesus was a man, but he had the power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. And Peter is saying here, look, in all of these miracles, in the strange happenings of Pentecost, these are simply signs that are pointing towards Jesus, the man who was God, the man who was God, God with skin on, we sometimes say. The Old Testament had predicted that this Messiah would do and be all the things that Jesus was. The Jews would have known that Jesus had the right credentials here in this moment, but they didn't celebrate that. They didn't honor Jesus as Lord. Instead, they credited his miracles to Satan, refusing to believe that he was the Messiah, even though he came in the proper way with all the proper marks of their Messiah. So Peter in his sermon makes the point, Jesus was a man who lived perfectly, But then he goes on to say that Jesus was a man who died sinlessly. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is challenging stuff, isn't it? Peter's one of those um, punchy preachers, and he doesn't hold back here. He says, look, here's a man who bears all the credentials of the Messiah that you're waiting for, and you put him to death on the cross. Peter says so clearly, you are culpable for the death of Jesus because of your sins. But Peter also says that God was responsible for the events of Easter week as well. In that same verse, God was responsible for the death of Jesus. And I think it's really important that Peter is saying this because in saying what he's saying, he's saying, look, the arrest and the trial and ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, Peter says it was planned, it was foreknown. Even way back to those days in the beginning of creation when Adam and Eve made that fatal choice that led the world into sin, right then God knew that he was going to do something about it when the time was just right And he knew that all along his son Jesus would be at the very center of it all. And herein in that one verse lies two concepts that on the face of it seem seem utterly incompatible to so many. That God and human beings could both be responsible for the same event that caused the death of Jesus. Peter says God was responsible for the death of Christ. But he also says that so were we. And then thirdly, Peter goes on to talk about Jesus, who didn't stay dead, but he rose again triumphantly from the dead. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And you know, this is the very bedrock of our faith. This isn't a sham, it isn't a folktale of the church that Jesus rose from the dead. As I've heard some people argue, Jesus really did rise from the dead. And without that hope, we are hopeless. Without the hope that Jesus raised from the dead, we have no hope today and we have no hope for the rest of eternity. And Peter is so confident here in his sermon that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think this is one of the most convincing truths there is about the resurrection of Jesus, that it really happened. 
It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about Peter's sermon, that not a single person protested against Peter's claim of the resurrection of Jesus. Less than two months after the crucifixion, Peter climbs onto his preacher's soapbox in the same city before the very same people who put Jesus to death, and he preaches that Jesus rose from the dead, and not a single person challenges him with accusations of fake news. Now, the officials there, the Jewish leaders, would have given their right leg to produce the body of Jesus in this moment, but they couldn't because there was no body to produce. Why didn't they challenge Peter? Perhaps because they knew the truth of the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus is central to our Christianity. Without it, we might as well consign all the things that we stand for as believers and as a church to the bin. Jesus really did rise from the dead, and that gives us a hope which is eternal. But Peter's not content, is he, to speak only of a living and a dying and a resurrected Jesus. He gives us a fourth point in his sermon. Preachers love to do this. They slip in a bonus point. And he explains, too, that Jesus ascended into heaven and is now glorified and exalted of the right hand of the Father, the place of honor as the King of all kings. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it was from this exalted position of honor and power at the right hand of the Father that Jesus poured out his spirit just as Joel said that he would. And in conclusion of his sermon, Peter declares as clearly and as confidently as he knows how that all of Israel should therefore be assured of something, that this Messiah who they previously rejected was indeed the Lord and Messiah that they had been waiting for. Listen to the response of the crowd, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus uh, Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't this a brilliant story? Hearing Peter's confident, Holy Spirit-filled proclamation of the gospel, the crowd responds with the best question that anyone can ever ask about any sermon. What then shall we do? 3,000 people responded to that question. And Peter says, look, it's a great question, and there are two steps You can't take the second step without the first, and if you've taken the first, then you ought to take the second. Step one, he says, repent. And then step two, he says, be baptized. Repent. So what's that all about? Well, repentance is being genuinely sorry, isn't it? Before God for our sins, and it involves a turning of the heart and a mind in such a way that we reject the kind of life that will lead us away from a relationship with God. In a sense, Peter is saying here to the crowd, look, if you're facing in this direction, what's needed now is a 180 degree turn. That is repentance. 
And as you turn, you, you, you turn your back from God and you put your back towards the world and instead you face towards God and you say, I'm going to live for you as the Holy Spirit empowers me. Peter's message is so clear, isn't it? And I'm so pleased that it is so clear. He says there is a need to repent to be in relationship with God and nothing less than a U-turn is good enough. And as we heard from that scripture reading, there were plenty of people listening who decided today's the day when I'm going to do that and I'm going to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 3,000 people come into faith. Wow, you've got to form a few home groups, haven't you, when 3,000 people come to faith. Step one, says Peter, you need to repent. And if you've done the first step, then you ought to take the second Peter says, look, the response of repentance or coming into relationship with Jesus ought to be followed by being baptized. And he says in verse 38, this is for every single one of you, without exception, for the forgiveness of your sins. It was such a joy this morning to celebrate in Barbara's baptism. In her baptism, all Barbara was doing was making an outward or a public declaration of an inward private faith. I often think of baptism of, if I could turn my inside, myself inside out, well, that would be the equivalent of baptism. If I could spin myself inside out, you'd see everything that was inside of me, outside of me. And we do that in baptism. A picture paints a thousand words, doesn't it? As we go into the water, we're illustrating, we're identifying with the burial of Christ, but more than that, we're saying our old life without Jesus is gone, and as we come up out of the water, it's the most beautiful picture of the resurrection, the new life in Christ that we're called to. We're born again into a new life with Jesus. Our inner reality is represented by this outer act. It's a story of death and of resurrection. And, you know, I've spoken to so many people who have said to me, well, you know, I'm just not ready to, to be baptized. I need to get a few things worked out first. I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. And let, as you read through the, the book of Acts, you see that baptism is more often than not a, an immediate step after someone's come to faith in Christ. Think for a moment about the example of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip, running alongside, explains the gospel to him. And what does the eunuch say? He said, look, here is water. What can stand in my way of being baptized? My guess is he still had a few things to work out in his life and to sort out. My guess is he probably had some wonky theology still to fix. But he sees water and he says, look, watch us stand in my way of being baptized. The only requirement for baptism is a genuine faith, a heart and a head response that our heart and our head join together in saying, I declare Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And I wonder for some of us this morning whether we've got stuck in that wrestle over baptism. Here is water. What stands in the way of you being baptized? Why not even this morning? Here is water. Why not be baptized? As a sign of your faith, as a public declaration of all those things that you believe inwardly, proclaim them outwardly in your baptism. Isn't it good that Peter in his sermon makes things so simple, but oh, how we complicate the journey of faith. Step number one, repent, come into a relationship with Jesus. And if you haven't done that this morning, I'm going to give an opportunity in a moment for you to do that. It might be this morning that you made a commitment to Jesus a very long time ago. I'm going to give you an opportunity today to recommit your life to Jesus. 
Beth, I wonder if you can pop that slide up of a, a quote uh, uh, that the Queen once made. And in a sense, this is what I sense that the Queen did. Actually, she made a commitment every single day. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do what's right, to take the long view, to give of my best in all that that day brings and to put my trust in God. Today is a new beginning. It's an opportunity to make a commitment for the first time or another time to Jesus. And if you haven't yet been baptized and you just sense a stirring of God, I'm not suggesting this is for everyone this morning, but if it's for you, if you know the stirring of God, come and catch me in the next song and we'll baptize you this morning. It'll be hilarious as I have to walk home soaking wet and say to you, come to faith in Jesus. It's the best decision you can ever make. And once you've taken that step of faith, would you be baptized as an outward declaration of that inward private faith? Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we want to uh, just thank you. Thank you that this moment in history, not only Pentecost, but Peter's clear and simple sermon has been recorded so we can go back to it and see the response of the early church to these amazing events that were happening around Pentecost. And Lord, thank you that Peter's call is so clear and it's so uncompromising in a sense. And Lord, I thank you so much for the way that Peter was able just to confidently declare that Jesus was Lord and 3,000 people responded on that day to say, I believe that and I'm stepping into that. And Lord, maybe for some of us today, that's our step. We need to take that step of saying, I'm going to trust for the first time that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that in his death, but in his resurrection too, he's dealt with my sin. And by trusting in Jesus, that's my way to be in relationship, the only way to be in relationship with the Heavenly Father. It might be this morning you want to, just with me, just pray a prayer of commitment or maybe even a prayer of recommitment this morning. And in praying this prayer, we're simply saying to God, look, I'm trusting Jesus that he's made a way for me to be in relationship with you. If you want to pray this prayer, just pray it in the quietness of your own heart, maybe for the first time or again. I can't tell you how many times I've become a Christian. <laughs> Let's pray this as a recommitment this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the death of Jesus. I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that he's triumphed over death. That he lived the perfect life. I choose to follow Jesus today. I choose Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. For the forgiveness of my sins. Holy Spirit, come. Fill my heart, fill my life with the seed of your Spirit and grow it, I pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer uh, this morning, especially if you've prayed it for the first time, just know that God heard that prayer and he honors that prayer as you step into relationship with him. We're going to sing a song which might be our closing song. It might not be our closing song. If you really feel stirred this morning that you should be baptized here, um, come and let me know during this song. And if anyone feels prompted in that way this morning, we'll have the privilege of baptizing you this morning if you've come to faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. We're going to sing a song that declares some of these truths that we've been thinking of this morning. We're going to declare in song all those things that we believe.